Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization, and I am the host of the Capitol Beach. I am really excited today to be talking about uh, an issue I don't actually work on very much, and and it's an issue that I think I should probably know more about. Um, and it is the uh, NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program. I don't think I've ever actually talked about corals on a Capitol Beach podcast, although I know coral is a a frequent subject of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, I'm really excited today to be joined by the director of the Coral Reef Conservation Program at NOAA, and and she serves on a number of different uh, roles on on various task forces and committees, and we'll hear all about that. So today we're really talking about how um, the policy and uh, the the politics, in some ways, of coral reef conservation. So it's not a science episode; it is a policy episode on corals. But before we begin, uh, for a quick word with our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Okay, uh, welcome, Jennifer. Jennifer Koss is the, as I mentioned, the director of the Coral Reef Conservation Program in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Um, Thank you so much for being here with me today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. And we would thoroughly enjoy having you work far more directly with us in your capacity with the coastal states. Well, I I know I should. And and, uh, more coastal states and territories than I uh, initially thought have corals, and we'll get into that. course, we have coastal territories. It's not just states. And, and so uh, they have a, a lot of amazing corals. So we'll get into that. Uh, but before we dive into the Coral Reef Conservation Program, um, let's hear a little bit about you. What's your background? How did you get into corals and coral reef conservation? So I am a, a typical Navy brat in that um, I grew up on lots of different coastlines and including Great Lakes and in Europe, and I've always had a fascination with um, our oceans and Great Lakes. 
And from there, um, went to the University of Michigan to get an oceanography degree, which sounds counterintuitive, but they actually have a great oceanography program. And um, got really intrigued in that interface between science and policy and how do you effectuate change. So instead of going into a, a science master's program or PhD program, went to the University of Delaware and got a master's degree in coastal marine policy. Um, and then spent a lovely two years learning about habitat restoration and watershed management in EPA's Chesapeake Bay program here in lovely Annapolis, Maryland, and then met um, a good friend and colleague in Noah who brought me on board to NOAA's Restoration Center and learned more about um, the restoration of habitat that's particularly critical for our nation's fisheries and um, endangered and protected species. And um, then was um, very lucky to, to work directly for the NOAA administrator and get a really wonderful overview of what NOAA does as an agency. And through that process, worked quite a bit with Capitol Hill on a fishing issue um, that was happening in the Pacific with respect to longline um, tuna and swordfish fisheries and how that interacts with protected turtles and got to know staff in Senator Inouye's office, who is then um, the the senator from Hawaii and spent another two years with his staff and ultimately ended up in NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program. So a little bit of a circuitous route to corals, which have always fascinated me, um, but very, very pleased to be able to use both my policy and hard science background in my job, which not a lot of people get to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. And a nice a nice uh, trail across the coastal uh parts of the country and, and into corals. Um, so I, I guess next is, is really what is the, the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program? And I, I saw you described it in writing somewhere as a matrixed program that brings to bear multidisciplinary approach to conserving and understanding coral reef ecosystems with expertise, tools, and programs from a wide swath of programs in all NOAA line offices. That's a mouthful. Um, what does that mean? Can you, can, you, can you give us a sort of simplified version and then maybe talk a little bit about how you work across NOAA line offices? Sure, sure. So um, we created a program that is responsive to the different science questions and management needs for coral reefs. And that is literally um, a huge number of different disciplines. And instead of creating a program that had um, one of every one of those um, needs addressed, it made way more sense to work across NOAA because a lot of those capacities already exist. If it's fisheries management expertise, um, the expertise to actually develop the science that leads to a fishery management plan, um, understanding what's happening to oceans on a broad scale in terms of climactic changes, um, down to microbial and genetic understanding. So a lot of those different skill sets already existed in NOAA that had been developed for multiple ecosystems. So what we did was develop this, this truly matrixed program where funds flow into one part of NOAA, but then are distributed across multiple parts of the agency to tap into those, whether it's a science or policy or direct implementation of a program skill sets. So it's a lot of cats to herd, if you like that analogy, um, but really yields great results because we're tapping into existing expertise and not duplicating efforts. Interesting. I, I, I'm not an expert on NOAA, but I know it a little bit. I, I can't think of any other sort of ecosystem program or conservation program that really does that same thing. Are, are, are you guys unique or are you sort of following a model of, of, another, of any other programs? 
I would say they're sort of matrix light programs mm-hmm. that exist when, within NOAA. We're probably the the most formally matrixed agreement with a with a charter that really dictates how things happen. But there are um, other programs in NOAA that are are modeled similarly, but not quite as extensively and as complicated as the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program. Yeah. Well, the one one of the f- few parts about the conservation program that I, I know a little bit about, and even this I don't know enough, is the way in which you are connected into the uh, state coastal management programs that do, in fact, have coral in their jurisdiction. And I alluded to this, the, the, the top of the show that there are you know more than you might think, or at least more than I initially thought. Um, do you want to sort of run through some of the the territories and areas that have um, that have coral that you do work with directly. Sure, and it, uh, as I talk to people in my daily life, and I talk about coral stuff, they think I work at the Great Barrier Reef in Australia because we don't have corals <laughs> in the United States. And I'm like, oh no, 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 that's far from the case. Um, so if we start here on the East Coast, um, there's Florida that has extensive reef. Um, starting from the southeast all the way through the Florida Keys, all the way out to the Dry Tortugas. And then all three islands that make up the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, Puerto Rico, and the two smaller islands, Culebra and Vieques. And then we'll move out to the to the west coast, and we've got the entirety of the Hawaiian archipelago, and then the Marianas archipelago, which is Guam and the um, northern Mariana Islands, as well as the islands that make up American Samoa. So it's all of our territories plus the two states of Hawaii and Florida. Yeah, and then there's also the the I, I don't know what you call them. They're not the territories, but the the um, marine sanctuaries and Micronesia, some of the sort of islands that are under. U.S. jurisdiction in some ways, but are not. Um, sure, are not we we do no, no, no. We do an awful lot of um, mostly monitoring and assessing what's happening with which we kind of lump a lot of those islands together as the Pacific okay. Remote Island areas. Yeah, and that has recently those islands have been um, designated to have a um, sanctuary created around those areas, and then we do work also closely with. Um, you had mentioned Micronesia, so the freely associated states um, that have uh, uh, they're not truly territories at all of the United States, but um, we interact with them through the compa- Compact Free Trade Agreement. Cool. Yeah. So a, a pretty broad uh, array. And then just to sort of look through, you, this is the Coral Reef Conservation Program. So do you work on the sort of deep sea corals that are not reef-based but are corals, or is it really just the... The sort of tropical, the things we I would normally think of as a as coral. <laughs> yeah, great, great question. Now, th- this is the tropical coral e- reef ecosystems. NOAA also has a deep sea coral research and technology program that's operated out of the Fishery Service, and there's another program um, that's dedicated to mesophotic corals, and those are what you call the twilight corals, the ones that aren't truly deep and they aren't truly shallow, the in-between corals. So that we've got three coral programs going. A lot of similar principles, but um, very different e- ecosystems in terms of geography and depth. Cool. And then maybe, I don't know if you want to pick one one of those territories or, or sort of broadly, uh, talk a bit about how you, what, what's the interaction between NOAA and the state in terms of managing the coral resources at, at a state or territory level? Great. Um, Predating NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program, under President Clinton, the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force was created. And within the Coral Reef Task Force, there are a variety of federal agencies, as well as governor-appointed representatives from each of the states and territories. And those folks make up the All Islands Committee. And um, the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program works quite closely with those governor 
appointed people and the agencies in which they sit at the state or territorial level. So we have um, directed cooperative agreements with each of those um, state or territorial agencies. And then because coral conservation really is multidisciplinary, we also work with other um, government agencies that oversee different things. So we'll typically work with like a department of planning, land and natural resources, fishing, however those agencies are, are arranged within um, either the state or territory, we have relationships with those entities as well. Um, and when you talk, you, you mentioned sort of setting up cooperative agreements. So does that mean that um, NOAA or the U.S. government is helping to uh, fund those states to do some of that conservation? Or is this purely just a sort of like MOU kind of we're working on this together? Or, or is the federal government supporting the state work on that level? Oh, no, it's very much about um, both technical assistance and financial assistance as well. So I kind of view the North Coral Reef Conservation Program as as having that direct relationship with the states and territories, um, both through technical assistance and through financial um, arrangements. Cooperative agreements are uh, very much a partnership between a federal agency and the grant recipient. Um, And then really also tapping into NOAA's capacities to provide best available science to help them make those decisions and not have to conduct all that science on their own. Yeah, that's great. And I know uh, from a CSO perspective, a coastal states organization perspective, many of the territories, you know, are fairly low resource, right? I mean, you're looking at island nations that are, um, have historically been underserved. They have lower populations, you know, they have, it's just hard for them to, to find the financial wherewithal to, to maintain a coastal program sometimes. And so the federal, the federal support is absolutely critical. And, and certainly I think that's the case too with corals. Um, yeah, absolutely the case. Um, most most of these shallow water ecosystems do exist within state and territorial waters. So it's their backyard, their resource, and they are the stewards of those areas. So the role of the federal government is to assist. Um, there, there are not many truly federally managed reefs. There's a few um, national parks and wildlife refuges, and then um, a bit of an overlay of NOAA with sanctuaries and, and monuments as well. Cool. Well, two things that you, you mentioned just a little bit before the, the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force, which it sounds like it sort of predated the, the coastal um, uh, the coastal reef program at NOAA, and then also mentioned you just mentioned national parks. And my next question was was sort of who else in the federal government works on corals? What is the Coral Reef Task Force? How does NOAA not just work with states, but how do you align different federal interests uh, in coral? Yeah, that's what the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force was created for. So it. Um, then through the Clinton executive order, identified the federal agencies um, that would be part of that task force. And then obviously the, the um, seven state and territorial entities. And those government agencies were chosen based on their mandates and or ability to impact um, coral reef areas. So I'm not going to try to name all 13 of them because I'm going to miss somebody, but um, there's science agencies like National Science Foundation. We are both science and management. There's NASA. So you're getting a lot of um, scientific input and increased understanding of coral reef ecosystems and what the changes and trends are, um, especially with climate change impacts. So you're getting that expertise. Then you have resource agencies like um, EPA and EPA does science as well. This is why I didn't want to go into all of the, because I'm going to, I'm going to mess somebody up here. Um, but it's it's really a mix of the agencies that that have either direct management of 
um, coral reef areas like Department of Interior does through wildlife refuges and parks and monuments, um, or a, a very heavy science mandate, um, and also an enforcement mandate as well. So we do work quite a bit with um, U.S. Coast Guard, have a nice strong relationship with Army Corps and um, Department of Navy, and then most recently added FEMA um, to the mix because there's a real role there in disaster recovery to make sure that we're doing everything we can for corals um, quickly after a a large natural disaster. That's right. I remember hearing after Hurricane Maria, just the, the sort of the devastation that that wrought on the Virgin Islands and, and Puerto Rico's coral and, and, you know, FEMA starting to get involved. So that's great. They're involved. Also really interested to see that, you know, I just pulled up the website for for the Coral Reef Task Force, which is if you're uh, online at home, it's, it's coralreef.gov. Um, and you can see the members. Uh, interesting Department of Defense seems pretty involved. I assume that's just because of their, you know, the, the uses and, and their the work within um, coral zone. So yeah, it's an interesting list of, of members. Yeah, DOD actually has quite a few coral reef areas if you start looking where all those strategic bases are scattered throughout the Pacific in particular. <laughs> right. Yeah, all those those uh World War Two sites where, you know, you don't you don't think about them being coral, but all those atolls and things out there probably had pretty nice coral research. What I mean, is there um other than just sort of the coordination aspect, is there a goal or a mission for the task force or is it really just to align planning and align, you know, just the coordination piece? It certainly is a lot of coordination and trying to make sure that we can bring to bear the resources and information each of these federal agencies have in the same places at the same time to get that kind of force multiplier of expertise to um, enable better conservation and recovery of coral reef resources. Um, so overall, I, you know, the mission of the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force is to conserve coral reefs for, you know, present and future generations, much like the, the, the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program's mission is. So we're all pulling in the same direction and um, um, operating with the same understanding and really trying our very best to be responsive to our state and territorial partner needs. Okay, I feel like we've got a little, a little, a uh, little bit of an overview of sort of what's going on at the the federal agency level. You know what NOAA's program does seems to be sort of the the, the lead on coral reef conservation, but then also the task force, which brings together all the um, federal entities as well as the state entities to to advance coral reef conservation at a policy science level. Um, but obviously, you know, federal government, this all has to start somewhere. And usually it starts from legislation. And in my sort of minimal knowledge and research, you know, it seemed like it, it sort of all comes back to the Coral Reef Conservation Act. Is that is that true? Is that sort of the, you know, uh, the, 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 the core uh, law for coral reefs? And, and if so, what does it do? Or am I, am I missing something in my little research? No, no, no. You're definitely on the right track. Um, the original Coral Reef Conservation Act was passed in 2000 and um, went many, many, many years without being reauthorized. And then just this past December, um, the reauthorized Coral Reef Conservation Act was passed under the um, National Defense Appropriations Act, which was a fun way to to get that <laughs> finally done after many years of not having it reauthorized. There are additional federal mandates um, through Magnuson-Stevens, which is our fisheries management um, primary policy. There's provisions to protect essential fish habitat, and that 
definitely fits the bill for corals there. And then under the Endangered Species Act, several species of corals have been listed. So there are other federal mandates that NOAA operates under um, for coral reefs. But I would say that the Coral Reef Conservation Act is probably the most specific um, piece of legislation that really drills down on what's needed to um, conserve and recover these resources. So, so if you if you're able to and, and don't mind a little bit more, on, like what does the Coral Reef Conservation Act do? Like, what does it say? And then maybe give us that sort of foundational what it you know what it established in 2000, and then what besides just reauthorizing, re-upping it, what um, what changes were made in the the version that was passed this December with the NDAA. Uh, the original one um, was kind of equal parts science and policy. So it called, it created the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program, and then it also called for um, mapping and characterizing the the coral habitats of the United States, um, working to achieve sustainable fisheries, understanding what impacts climate change was having on corals, dealing with land-based sources of pollution. Um, so, so a nice blend of um, pure science, applied science, and um, science to inform management, and then obviously working with our states and territories to effectuate that management. Um, it was a nice general piece of legislation that was um, nicely worded at a high level that gave us a lot of flexibility to modify what we were doing as we understood ecosystems and were better able to target science and, and management activities and to adapt to new threats. Um, so it was it was a great piece of legislation that really served us well for over two decades. And um, the new Coral Reef Conservation Act kind of encompassed all of the old Coral Reef Conservation Act and gave us a few new authorities um, and specific direction with respect to um, coral restoration, using resilience-based management, um, really thinking about um, corals as natural infrastructure. And, and I think a lot of what came in the new bill was predicated on what we've learned over the last 20, 23 years um, in, in having the NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program. It also interestingly creates um, far more understanding of what individual reef units will need moving into the future. So um, under this new act, we're going to be working with our federal, state, and territorial partners to designate um, reef management units, create coral reef action plans for each one of those um, managed areas, and then also develop um, communities, I think they're called community reef stewardship partnerships for each of those areas, and um, reformulate our grant programs to be responsive to the new National Coral Reef Resilience Strategy that we will be writing. So a lot more um, direct understanding of what management and science needs are for individual reef areas, um, less um, general than the old CRCA was. Yeah, that's really interesting. Both the, the, the specific management, uh, you know, prescribed management plans or, or, or action plans for individual units, but then also at sort of a broad level, thinking about reefs not just as a as a as species or as an ecosystem, but actually as a uh, infrastructure, as tools for um, pro- providing community community protection and community resilience, uh, which is you know I think something that I feel like most of us sort of intuitively get now, but was just something we probably weren't thinking about 25, 30 years ago. 
Yeah, and happily, there, there's a new provision in in the the new Coral Reef Conservation Act to um, promote greater understanding of the ecosystem values that corals provide every day. And happily, we were we're about I don't know halfway through an effort to update our our both economic as well as um, non monetary value understanding of corals in each of the states and territories. So we should be coming out with a document in the next few years that. Um, will greatly improve the understanding of why corals are critical to coastal populations and the nation's economy. That's awesome. Um, cool. Well, you also touched on some of the other coral-related legislation. You know, you know, some individual species of coral are listed as endangered. There's other pieces out there. Uh, what other, you know, if you could wave your magic wand, what other pieces of, uh, you know, what other policy changes could be made to help um, to help NOAA or more broadly, the federal government and the states uh, working together conserve coral. Are there are there policy changes needed still? Um, boy, if I had that magic wand, I think I would be waving it around like a windmill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of areas I'd really like to dig in on, and I, and I think we're well on our way. Um, we've really improved our understanding of corals as um, natural infrastructure in terms of um, wave mitigation and protecting fragile shorelines and vulnerable communities that exist in those areas. And we're seeing some small incremental policy changes in terms of eligibility of funding, both within FEMA and the U.S. Army Corps, and just just sort of greater recognition nationally of, of what natural, um, well-maintained coastal ecosystems do. Mother Nature had it figured out a long time ago. And, and I think Hurricane Sandy was, was the aha moment for a lot of people where they saw um, where barrier islands that were in good shape and oyster beds and other natural infrastructure areas were in place. The coastal communities behind those areas did a whole lot better than where we were completely built up. Um, so I think greater understanding at a national level of the roles that these critical ecosystems um, play, that's key. And I think it's happening. Um, and then really wrapping our heads around water quality. Corals are pretty delicate in terms of their, um, their needs. And, um, and, and we don't have a lot of tools now that, um, would help us dictate what water quality standards, standards should be for corals. Um, um, that, that level of understanding of what those thresholds is being developed now. And then that, I think that would take a lot of policy change, both in terms of how um, EPA operates and the Clean Water Act might get amended. That's very ambitious, but um, it, it really is about water quality, both in terms of what's in the water and the temperature of the water. And then we start getting into bigger policy changes for the needing to reduce carbon um, or carbon footprints. Because climate change right now is probably having, not probably, it is having the, the largest impact on corals. You went big fast there, starting with, you know, just sort of looking at how we can manage specific coral to water quality and clean water act to, uh, to climate legislation. But certainly all of those are going to, you know, play huge impacts on, on coral. But I, I think it's helpful to think about it at think about it at different scales, right? Like just because we haven't been able to make the kind of carbon emission reductions that we, we need to, to protect coral long-term doesn't mean we can't make smaller changes that are going to have, you know, long-term impact. So I, I do appreciate the way you sort of tiered that out. Um, uh, I actually wanted to pivot a little bit to some international questions, but before we do, I sort of wanted to, you know, 
I don't, sometimes I don't even know enough about this topic to, to ask all the right questions. Is there anything else that, you know, you haven't had the opportunity to share or, or a listener should know about what the federal government is doing for coral in, uh, in the U.S. in domestic waters? Um, I think you actually touched on it a tiny bit is, is these solutions are both local as well as global. And what can you do in the interim, um, assuming we figure out as a species how to manage our, our carbon emissions just to get the planet back to a, a healthy level is, is what do we do in the here and now? We can't just throw up our hands and go, well, you know, current trajectories say corals are going to disappear in the next 50, 100 years, whatever the projections are based on whichever of the, the projections that the um, IPCC folks are, are working on um, is, is we're really looking to figure out how to restore degraded areas using corals that are um, better adapted to changing ocean conditions, whether that's temperature, ocean acidification, or the advent of new diseases. So trying to do some of that um, work that's been done terrestrial for years to, to help um, plant species and, and, and other species of animals adapt to changing terrestrial um, conditions. So there's a lot of what the science that we fund and we work with other agencies to fund is really to figure out what are those adaptive processes in corals? How can we harness them? How can we breed the next generation of, of corals that are better suited to the environment that they're being forced to, to exist in? Um, so that's been exciting. And that, that actually then segues into the international. Um, prior to uh, a several year global bleaching event that impacted Australia, we'd not really partnered heavily with Australia on um, restoration and resilience efforts. And they're now moving out um, at, at lightning speed. They've gotten a lot more resources to deal with the critical situation on the Great Barrier Reef that happened a few years ago. Um, so it's been wonderful to work in partnership with them and with other nations through a variety of different um, areas to improve our understanding and our ability to recover these threatened ecosystems at a global level. And so what is that what does that international partnership look like? I mean, I imagine a country like Australia, which is fairly, you know, fairly advanced, has obviously going to have, you know, as much, maybe even more um, knowledge of, of corals uh, than we do. Like it's going to be different than if you're working with a possibly sort of a smaller island nation or, or, or a country with low capacity. So how do you, how does the U.S. actually work with, with a country like Australia versus a, a smaller, you know, uh, less, um, less well-resourced country? Yeah, there's a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one back and forth between Australian and U.S. scientists, but in terms of a more organized fashion, there's the International Coral Reef Initiative, which has existed for a great many um, number of years that has both developed and developing nations in it. And that is a forum to bring together the best available science, new tools, new best management practices, and, and make sure that that technical assistance gets to um, lesser developed countries that have coral reefs in them. Um, so many of our coral reef ecosystems are interconnected. There's no real way to manage your own corals at a national level because there's interconnectivity between corals of other nations. And if we're, if we're going to recover these ecosystems at a global level, um, we need to all be working 
uh, together pulling in the same direction. So there's great recognition of transferring knowledge and expertise and tools um, to other areas, as well as understanding how um, those those areas and um, Native and Indigenous populations have been doing this type of conservation for perhaps millennium and, and learning about what those um, conservation tools look like and blending those two types of conservation strategies together. Um, that's been an area of exciting work um, that that we're beginning to understand more and, and do more of that. So, and then there's also um, large initiatives to really improve that coral restoration um, understanding in terms of being able to employ um, new technologies and new um, interventions for warming and more acidified waters. And, and interestingly, under the Saudi presidency of the G20, a new initiative was stood up, and that's the coral. Um, reef accelerator, coral reef R&D accelerator platform. And they are um, going through the first round of applications to fund that that science to come up with those new interventions. Um, so, and I'm part of that effort as well. And then kind of lastly, the other more financial side of things is the Global Fund for Coral Reefs has also been stood up and they've been getting um, good donations from member countries and other um, participants to um, undertake large-scale coral conservation investments in many different areas around the world. And those are both um, um, developed and developing nations there as well. Interesting. That actually prompted a question uh, about when you're talking about some of these international funds, are you talking about exclusively um, like government funding or or are there is there private funding? Are there, are there opportunities for you know, large scale public private partnerships to, to, to restore uh, coral reefs or the public private partnerships, more sort of small scale, you know, mitigation areas that are being protected for, you know, at a smaller scale. Yeah. These, these are all designed definitely at the public private partnership interface. And there've been some hefty donations from philanthropic groups, particularly for the global fund for coral reefs. Um, I think the original donors to, the Global Fund for Coral Reefs was the um, government of Monaco, mm, mm-hmm. or maybe it was the Prince Albert Foundation. I'm, I'm misremembering, but definitely Monaco, and then the Paul G. Allen Foundation through Vulcan. So that was the the initial slug of money that went to stand that up. And, and since then, we've seen um, donations come in from governments as well as um, NGOs and, and, and larger um, private institutions too, really tapping into some of that philanthropic money. That's that's very cool. The sort of you know using <laughs> using the, the the private seed funding, but to leverage both other private funding as well as federal funding. Um, that's that's great. So, as you're looking both internationally and the challenge that face you know the the, the con- interconnectedness of corals, which you talked about, you can't just work on a, a one country's corals alone because they are so interconnected. What do you see as the um, the the biggest policy or governmental governmental hurdle to restoring uh, restoring or conserving corals and then and then the flip side of that of course is what is what, what do you see as the biggest opportunity what is the biggest uh, biggest opportunity uh, I think like anything else um, some of the biggest hurdles are capacity and funding to do what needs to be done um, and and working at a global scale to make sure that um, we're supporting things that increase knowledge, um, and increase capacity to do what's needed um, are important things to to pursue, and um, 
And then it'll be interesting to see the the more that we understand the role that corals play and the more um, political willingness there is to invest more in um, coral restoration, it'll be interesting to see if the private sector um, thinks that that's a more attractive thing to start doing. So, so there's a certain you know amount of assurances that need to happen in order for private sector to get involved. And we're seeing new things come up through insurance programs and, and reinsurance programs where the private sector has come in and saying, well, we're going to insure these reefs. And, and when they get in trouble, like through a, a hurricane or some other natural disaster, there's money available to go do that um, immediate restorative actions that need to happen. Um, so th- there's those types of things. And then, um, you know, again, getting back to ending the impacts of climate change, that's a big one. <laughs> the big hurdle, getting us off <laughs> fossil fuels, or at least, you know, reducing the, the carbon emissions. Um, so y- you mentioned some of the opportunities there with, with, uh, reinsurance industry looking at different ways of sort of um well almost sort of monetizing the value of coral reefs um are there other sort of international opportunities that you see i mean you you mentioned the the sort of the big push that that um australia is now doing are there are there other sort of like are there other good news international stories that uh you know that the casual observer might not read if we're not you know if we're not deep into the coral literature or coral news? Sure. I mean, I've, I think I've seen not only at the United States level, but globally, the the willingness of people to pull together and kind of check egos at the door in order to make a meaningful difference in conserving coral reefs is at an all-time high and new players coming into um, that arena. Um, and, and the recognition, especially through CORDAP, through that coral R&D accelerator platform, is, is the knowledge that um, it's not just a bunch of biologists that are going to come in and figure out how to do this. It takes a, a, a really amazing array of different skills when it comes to coral restoration and talking um, really outside of the box ways of thinking about restoring corals in terms of materials science and engineering and um, finance mechanisms and different things that we hadn't really tackled yet. It's been more of a, a biological question for a long time, and now it's much more multidisciplinary and exciting things coming out. I think that the instant that you start getting out of your own way and consulting people who think in different ways than you do to solve the same problem, you get some really amazing innovations. So um, I'm excited um, and, and, and really heartened to see the interest and the passion um, for corals at a global level, as well as definitely in the United States. Yeah, I, I love that. The, the idea that, you know, the, the more you can get uh, different people with different backgrounds, biologists talking to social scientists, talking to financiers, the better your chance for, for success are because you're just bringing, you're each bringing different things. I will say one thing that, you know, just even listening to you and I'd heard a little bit of this at heart that, that makes me feel more optimistic is, is the idea that we are, and this is the biological side, I think that there's, there's ongoing study about how to develop more resilient coral. So it's not just that the coral reefs are providing community resilience. It's that we're now figuring out how to really sort of develop, grow, plant. I'm not sure exactly what the, the, the terms are, but the, the, we are, we are working to make sure that we are restoring coral reefs with coral itself that is more resilient. That, that to me is just sort of fascinating. It's a little, it's almost a little like disturbing in a sort of like, you know, we're going to Frankenstein our way out of it, but it also 
feels sort of you know natural, right? We're, we're we're doing this on all sorts of natural infrastructure projects, right? We're not just trying to like you know rebuild marshes that this you know by pumping dirt on them. We're now thinking about how do you, you know, how do you sustain marshes through, you know, river diversions and how are you, you know, using thin layer placement. This is, I'm more of the sediment guy, but I, I love the idea that we're, we're looking at sort of more innovative ways of restoring coral um, to, to survive the, you know, the changing, the changing climate. Definitely. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of great efforts going on. And there's actually a pretty exciting effort um, that the Department of Defense has funded um, through DARPA. And that are, that, that's a project called Reef Fence and um, looking to place two big installations um, in Hawaii and Florida. They're going through all the R&D and testing now um, of hybrid reef structures where you're, you're using um, an artificial substrate, but then planting corals all over it to kind of immediately get you back to an old large scale fully functioning reef area rather than starting from scratch where we are in other areas. So um, lots of exciting things happening. And and at a federal level, who would have thought it was DOD that would be the first to put down the the big money to see if we could do it as as a conceptual project. So um, it's kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I feel like I've I've heard uh, Peter and Tyler, who host the ASPN show, often say, you know, it, when you get the when you start getting the insurance industry and the reinsurance industry and the Department of Defense on board, that's when you know you've you've gone mainstream, um, right? And and I feel like that's when that that that's that gives me hope, right? Because you know when you're this little niche coastal marine biologist scientist and a you know environmentalist working on it, it feels like you're 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 battling this alone. But when you get when you get Department of Defense on it, it it's uh. You got you got real money, real interest. It, it goes much, much, much bigger and much quicker. Yep. <laughs> uh, um, well, uh, Jennifer, I know this has been a sort of a, a quick run through uh, a vast array of different work. Um, I I need to commend you on a couple things, both your work, and uh, I think I have heard less acronyms from you than I've heard from any other uh, federal person I've talked to, which is awesome because I have no doubt that there are lots of acronyms in coral reef conservation. But I really appreciate you explicitly saying what all the programs are um, and uh, would encourage folks to check it out. Uh, coral reef, coral or just coral reef.gov for the uh, task force. There are some amazing resources on there. There's amazing work going on um, in the, you know, in the policy side, as well as in the science side. Um, any, any final thoughts or anything else that, you know, uh, your casual coastal uh, concerned coastal person should know about, um, about what's going on at, on coral in the federal government? I think we covered a huge amount of um, <laughs> topics there, but um, if anybody's interested, we're always happy to talk and um, certainly willing to, to bring you into the fold to help us figure out how to solve these problems. There's lots to be done. Yeah, awesome. Well, well Jennifer, my final question for you, as it is for all my guests, is uh, what is your favorite coastal area? I know I, I was going to ask you what your favorite coral reef is, but I also don't want to get you in trouble with any of your constituents. So maybe maybe share a, a, a coral area that has a, speci- a special place in your heart, even if it's not your specific favorite, and, and then uh, any other coastal area that you, you really like. Um, I, I will say that, I mean, I have favorites all over the place, but it's like picking a favorite kid. You're not allowed to do that. Um, uh, the, the coral reef area that had the biggest impact on me was being lucky enough to go to Palau several years ago and just seeing the sheer variety of what that part of the Pacific has to to offer just blew me away. Um, but my, my dearest love in terms of coastal 
um, areas is the New England shoreline. I just, if I get back up there and I smell all that seaweed on the rocks and the mud and picking mussels brings me right back to a very, very happy time in my lifetime. So as much as I dearly, dearly love corals, I think the New England coastline is my favorite coastal ecosystem. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for everything you do. And thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you. Thank you.